This podcast is sponsored by Cleanesis Group. Through innovation and engagement of people, businesses and governments, they aim to eradicate microplastic pollution from all angles. The goal is to spread awareness so that people can make informed choices and be part of the solution. For more information, please visit cleanerseasgroup.com. It's an honour to be joined today by the beautiful and talented Fazana Badawal, the CEO and founder of Curzon PR, as well as former Vice Chair of the UK Conservatives Party Business Relations Department. As a thought leader, Fazana regularly lectures around the world on PR, entrepreneurship and women leadership, contributing to the BBC, Forbes and the Financial Times, as well as other media outlets. If that's not impressive, Fazana is also an ambassador and resident PR expert at Oxford Foundry, where she delivers PR masterclasses and mentors entrepreneurs. Good morning. How are you today, Fazana? Thank you for joining me today. Good morning, Anisha. Um, very well and very happy to, to be speaking to you. Thank you so much for um, having me on. Fantastic. So, as you know, my podcast is called Naughty Bites. The one question I do have to ask you is, when you get home from work, what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, I've got many guilty pleasures. Um, so, uh, but my favourite is, and I'll show you right now, I love chocolate. Oh, wait, uh, wait. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I like Maltesers, Twix, Mars, you know, peanut M&Ms, Twirl. Oh. People supposed to be really posh chocolates and my heart sinks because I just love cheap chocolate. Well, I have to ask you because have you tried the Twirl Orange, the limited edition? No, I'll try that though because actually chocolate and orange is just an amazing mix. Um, no, definitely. Okay. Do you try that? And my last question is, how do you eat your Twix? God, I have. Um, so, so I don't get all messy. You know, like some people take the caramel and then yeah. as I, 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 yeah, I'm a straight shooter. I just, you know bite it and and I try and have it slowly to really savor it and um and usually I love having a Twix when I'm watching Netflix some trash on TV reality that's amazing TV. yeah that, that, that's, that's amazing yeah I, I put lots of pleasures together at the same time reading the Daily Mail whilst watching like Dubai Bling whilst eating you know Twix was like triple pleasure that's amazing because um you do know that Amazon has this gift box. My colleague sent it me and it was old school sweets from like the 80s and 90s. So it was like dib dabs and um do you know the, is it chocolate twirl? The one that was like really long and you have to really pull it. Um and they do the work for chocolates as well. Yeah, I, I remember those. God, yeah, that is totally my generation. So the nostalgia. <laughs> it still was amazing. So Christmas presents. So I have to ask you, um, let's talk about your work. So one of your specialities is destination marketing. How do you increase customer awareness of a particular destination so that they begin to think differently about that specific country or city? Well, it's really interesting because actually there's a lot of um, touch points with a country or a destination that are interlinked. Um, and it's really the sort of the interplay of culture, tourism and trade um, and investment. And so um, so I'll give you an example. For instance, um, if you take Malaysia and Thailand, they both have beautiful beaches, beautiful places, a destination. 
But Thailand has more tourism from the UK than Malaysia. And the reason why is because actually there's lots of Thai restaurants in the UK that people, you know, from the UK go and visit these Thai restaurants. They so they're familiar with the food. They meet often uh, people from Thailand uh, who are working in the restaurants, and so they have that familiarity touch points on their turf. And then when they are looking where they want to go on holiday, they think, oh, maybe I'll go to Thailand because I like the food. I've met Thai people in restaurants. You know, it's not so unfamiliar. And um, and then they. They go on holiday and then that helps with the country's tourism after sampling the country's culture which is in this case culinary and then when they go the tourism they're like oh this is quite nice maybe I'll buy I'll um you know um, I can do some business here um and you know or maybe I'll buy a business so then it you know so the culture goes into the tourism the tourism goes into the sort of um you know trade and then investment and of course you know, there's a lot of British expats who are like you know what I want to go and have a holiday home in mm-hmm. Thailand or I'm going to go and live there. So you end up, you know, people investing in buying properties um, or looking in, in terms of doing business, you know, especially during COVID, a lot of people went to countries like Thailand um, to go and work from there remotely. Um, so it's really the interlinking of culture that feeds into tourism, which then feeds into trade, which then feeds into investment. Um, mm-hmm. So it's taking that, that sort of, you know, macro perspective um, in promoting a destination. So then, so it's like a 360 sort of view. Mm. So like you said, you know, Thai food is super popular in the UK and people love it. Um, in situations like Nepal, mm. a lot of, you know, it's really difficult to find a good Nepalese restaurant in the UK. In a situation like that, how would you, have you been approached by countries where the culinary variety of restaurants or food or understanding of the culture in the UK is minimal where they've asked you, look, we need your help. We want to increase tourism in our country, get people over there. Like, how does that work? Well, you know, it's quite interesting because, you know, some countries obviously are very lucky that that, that they had a diaspora um, that came to countries like the UK, set up restaurants, and then you know, it's unwittingly sort of promoted the country um, mm. because they, you know, because they had to... Um, I think if you look at, for instance... Um, the Bangladeshi community, they came over to the UK and they set up a lot of restaurants, but they yeah. didn't call it Bangladeshi food. They called it Indian food. Yeah. And so Bangladesh lost out on that. Um, and so therefore people who, you know, who would go to India, oh, let's go down to the Indian restaurant. It was actually a Bangladeshi restaurant, Bangladeshi chefs, Bangladeshi waiters. But then if you said to the people, oh, do you want to go to India or Bangladesh? They would think, I've got no, I've got no familiarity touch points, not knowing that they're local, that they've been going to for the last 20 years, is actually Bangladesh. <laughs> Indian. So I think, you know, one thing is that how you frame, you have the diaspora actually frame their yeah. um, culture. Um, you know, there's been countries and places that have approached us that don't have that sort of diaspora in the UK. So what we do, and they don't have huge sort of budgets. Um, so, you know, some countries, um, you know, that we've worked with, some of their strategies have been actually to subsidise, um, you know, one of their sort of top chefs to go out to countries like the UK and the US and help them subsidize in setting up restaurants. Um, okay. If there isn't a budget to set up the restaurants, then you know they'll do, for instance, like a sort of a culture week or you know a food week, um, mm. you know, or food trucks, pop-ups. Um, so so it's a lot easier for countries that don't have this huge budgets or the diaspora to go and and do. It. And there's also some countries who inherently their food is not sort of um, it's not easy and palatable for another country. Yeah. Um, the way 
that you work around it is you do a hybrid food. So you do fusion. So you take that country's food and you and you mix it with another culture. Um, mm. And then that way it becomes more palatable. So, you know, for instance, it's become very fashionable sort of, um, you know, uh, Peruvian food, which is a mixture of, you know, sort of Japanese food mixes. And so when, That's right. Yes, when you have these, you know, whereas if people just go and have hardcore Peruvian food that isn't mixed with sort of Japanese, it may not be palatable to a lot of people. So doing fusions also makes um, certain culinary foods from certain cultures more palatable to other cultures um if you f- if you do the fusion and you can still you know storytell because a lot of countries around the world have minority groups and perhaps that intersection of their sort of cultures meeting in that country through food itself could be a great cultural export and a storytelling of how diverse the country is definitely you know when you mention bangladeshi food you're right you know i'm actually from loughborough and there's a massive Bangladeshi community in Loughborough. But then you made me think because a lot of the restaurants were Indian, Taste of India. And I'm like, but you're Bangladeshi. But a lot of people don't know that, you know, when you think of India and you've got Pakistan and Bangladesh, if you're not from there, a lot of people won't know that, you know, Bangladesh is famous for fish yeah. and using fenugreek. And if you want anything fish, they are the guys to go to. And then Pakistan is the meat, the biryanis, the saffron and the milk-infused mutton, and it's just beautiful. And then India in general is more vegetarian. And it's a shame that, you know, listening to you right now, Bangladesh restaurants, Bangladeshi restaurants in Loughborough or wherever in the UK are not promoting their food because it's so rich and it's different and it's just another take on Indian cuisine. And I think it's, you know, it should be promoted but it's a shame. Yeah, and it's the same in Africa, you know, 54 countries and people just lump it together. And, you know, you take a country like Italy and they've done a really good job of, of really um, promoting different foods of different mm-hmm. regions. So they've really taken a regional approach to culinary storytelling. So, you know, you go to the north and it's known for polenta and grassini and janduia. You know, you go to Bologna you know, for, you know, uh, you know, spaghetti bolognese and focaccia. Um, so they've done a really good job in yeah. people being much more aware of the different regions. And when you take huge land masses like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and the fact that we're kind of all lumped together as curry, you know? Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. So, so I think, as you know, I think our, I think that region needs to, you know, really, I think they've got great potential for storytelling. Likewise, Africa, uh, huge potential for culinary storytelling, untapped. No, definitely. And it's like, it's curious to say that Italy's marketed themselves fantastically you know and I think I don't want to slate Spain but all you know living here when people do come here they're just saying oh I'm going to have um patatas bravas and I want to have paella yeah but actually no (laughs) because you know and I'm hoping Spain does change this you know paella's from Valencia like you do not have if you want real paella you go to Valencia if you want to come to the south it's the fried fish it's um yeah like this stew that's made with it's called plata saranton i think and it's made with every part of a pig i've not touched it but um it's you know people know that and then if you go to the north it's about the beef and you know in august you have vendresca which is a part of tuna Mm. and you know like so people know you go here for certain things and i don't think spain has marketed themselves as well yeah when you compare them to italy which is just next door and it's it's a it's a pity but hopefully they'll do something about it because yeah but so 
you know, when we think of, so, you know, you answered a bit of my question, food has, food and its origin has a significant role in this. And, you know, I think in the UK, after World War II, there was massive migrations from different countries. And I think the thing about the UK is that we're very open to trying different foods and different cuisines. Um, how, you know, for example, if it's a cuisine, you know, you mentioned fusion, Japanese, Peruvians, massive here in Spain. And how has it been difficult to introduce a cuisine where people have been a little standoffish in trying it? Has that ever come across in the work that you've done? Yes. And I think the way that we countered it is um, we collaborated with other cuisines, other cultures. Um, and another way of really doing it is you take, I remember we did some work in California and we took a really famous um, Californian chef um, and he was quite kind of, you know, he was young and he had tattoos and he was very cool and, you know, and he was very Instagrammable and all of that. And, um, and you know, the, the food brand that we were working with, um, they were seen as quite sort of, um, you know, a little bit sort of traditional and they wanted to shake that image off and it was actually and then the way to do it is is we got some food trucks and we had the chef you know create the you know an incredible kind of like menu uh you know during the space of a couple of weeks doing pop-ups at key places uh, and that kind of helps because it's, it's what we call in pr brand adjacency so if you have a certain brand that's perceived in a certain way and it wants to be perceived in perhaps a different way uh you then take you know, a brand in that space and you find some sort of bridge, some sort of collaboration. So through the brand adjacency, uh, the brand sort of transforms a bit and takes a little bit of the magic from the other brand. Um, mm. So, yeah, so it's a little bit like that. I think that's amazing. And then, like, when we think of food and gastron gastronomic values, they are distinguishing assets in marketing places, what you've just mentioned. Yeah. As a means of shaping perceptions about a country, gastronomy represents and communicates values, not just about food, it's about their entire culture, you know, how you eat, how you sit, you know, like Japan, you sit on the floor and, you know, you don't put your feet on the table. In India, you eat with your hand because it's a thing about senses with the spices. Um, and it's, all of these are narratives and, it, you know, manifestations. Did you do this for the Basque country in Malaysia? Because they're two different countries. Like, you know, one's a region in Spain and the one's a country. But can you tell me more about it? Because how are they different in terms of communities and values? Because food's one section, but everything else about that country or region is, there's more. Yeah. What, what, when I was working uh, on projects with uh, Basque and, and Malaysia, it was funny enough focused on trade. But the conversations around it on how to attract was, you know, working with culture as ways to bring them in. Um, but, you know, I would say with, you know, with a lot of countries around the world, there's definitely a growing awareness that uh, you just don't go in straight with a hard sell of, you know, invest in our country. You know, here's our sectors. Mm. Um, you actually start off with warming people up with the culture and uh, and there's definitely a growing awareness that food is, is not just about taste it is about history it's about mm. the plants uh, and, and it's about the plants and the food that has you know that is known in that region uh, so you know so when you sample a, a culture's food you sample so much more than just taste you know as you said you sample how they eat what does food mean to them how communal is the food experience mm. 
um, you know, how much is, you know, how much do they place emphasis upon food? Um, they talk about food cultures, you know, some cultures, basically, say it's fast food, it, food is just a functional, you just, you know, chug yeah. it down, and it's fast, cheap. Uh, in other cultures, it's like, you know, you really take your time to spam me around a table. There's rituals around food. So it's not just about the food per se. It's definitely about the rituals. And also quite interesting about the ingredients and the ingredients, you know, tells you about the land and it tells you about what grows out there and how that's mm. shaped. I think as humans, uh, we forget how much we're shaped by the, um, you know, the flora and the fauna um, and, you know, the plants and the animals around uh, the land that, you know, we're sort of brought up in. And, um, and and I think that, you know, things are changing now because you can get lots of stuff out of season from other countries, but we're moving back into a slightly slow food movement where people want to, you know, get ingredients locally. So I think that's going to be quite mm. interesting. We're all coming full circle where, before it used to be very fashionable that you live in one part of the world, but yet you had the mm. money to, to, you know, bring in, uh, you know, a very rare fruit from another part of the world, totally out of season. But now it's kind of almost looked down upon because yeah. people are the environmental impact. So what's going to probably change now is um, when people are in different countries, they're really going to go back to understanding that culture through the food because the food will genuinely be from local sources. Um, so that would be quite interesting, an interesting shift. I think so, because I think, you know, um, provenance has become massive. You know, carbon footprint, also another big thing that's happening. And I remember, like, you know, when I used to work in the UK, you would have your lunch at your desk. But then when we explained that to people here in Spain, they were like, wait, 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 you sit at your desk and you eat? And they were like, no, 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 we, you know, work eating is away from your work and you sit together and you have a conversation and then I thought yeah maybe because our lifestyle is so different that we've lost a sense of eating you know enjoyment around food but I think now because of other generations and because of climate change we're slowly like you said it's turning back and we're starting to appreciate provenance local sustainability local food and everything else that's coming along with it and um you know it got me thinking because we travel, the world is global, you get to travel everywhere. And people think, oh, I want to go to Thailand and have Thai food. Or I want to go to India, I'm going to have chapati or whatever it is. And as much as you think in general, just in general, people think that, oh, I'm having a variety of food. That's not actually the case because, you know, in India, we used to have a massive variety of different types of wheat and crops. And we used to have a lot of millet, but then our wheat, our diet became a lot of wheat oriented. So then you get these companies that are like, there's four major producers of wheat and they will supply the entire world. So whether you think you're getting a variety of seasonal produce unique to that country, that's not the case, which has also led people with, you know, discomfort in food or allergens in food because our natural diet didn't contain that. So I yeah. think now there is a movement as well as to regain lost crops that were unique to the country to also make more sustainable, like, you know, instead of monoculture, we need to, like, regain soil and grow our cups, that's crops that's more natural to the environment that they live in. And um, there's, like, a massive movement in that. And have you come across that in in the work that you've done? And that's fascinating. I mean, my funny enough, my, my dad's from Kashmir, 
and um, and so he has noticed that the plants and the trees when he was growing up as a boy in Kashmir um, have been replaced by other you know sort of tree varieties that are you know because off the locals make money from chopping down the trees so they need to sort of change the tree species with ones that grow faster and the wood has more value but then it has an impact upon all of the sort of ecosystem so mm-hmm. he actually went around um finding a lot of these sort of original tree species and you know mm-hmm. and replanting them um so not so much for my work but just for my family I've, I've sort of you know sort of noticed that but you've also got the added complexity lens of climate change so where historically certain crops were, you know, were indigenous to that region, uh, and obviously indigenous is always subject to a certain timeline. Um, mm. Where we are facing climate change, um, those indigenous crops may not actually be the right ones anymore um, yeah. because there are shifts and changes, um, and the environment is changing. And so, it's you know, it's going to be really interesting how they're going to tackle that aspect. Definitely, and then. Where people have been very gung ho, just going in, changing plants, species, not understanding the delicate ecosystem that nature is, and not understanding yeah. the damage that we've been doing. I think so. Like I, because um, I, I did some research, you know, about just in India about food culture, and there was a book by the Sultan of Mandu from the 14th century. And um, and he did a collection of recipes that were of the terrain of India, but you know, India as in you know the whole of Pakistan, the whole like the whole like of every like all the countries connected to us, and of recipes why the spices reflect you know worked well with you know that certain that principal ingredient, and you know, for health benefits, for sensuality, for love, for connection to the land and the seasons. And this is beautiful collection. And um, it made me realise thinking, oh, that's why we do something. But we don't have that ingredient anymore. But why don't we have that ingredient anymore? And I think maybe as well, from what you're saying, it traces back to the delicate balance of, you know, climate change. And maybe they don't survive now in that, you know, in India or whatever they're from. And it's just a beautiful connection. And I'm doing some more research on that because I just think it's a fascinating story that dates back thousands of years. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite stunning and rich in culture. Yeah, it's fascinating. And also, I think, you know, the issue is that, you know, some generations disregard the wisdom of earlier generations yeah. uh, as being outdated, and uh, and sometimes there's a there's a disconnect in passing wisdom through through generations, and that's perhaps where we lose um, these sort of uh, you know the reasons why the spices have been blended in a certain way. Yeah, definitely. And so when we think about cultural, just a bit slightly off topic, but when we think about cultural dis- um, diplomacy, this is one of the areas that you work in. Um, it facilitates a form of cultural exchange, such as sports, literature, music. Have you, like, as an expert or through Curzon PR, have you participated in any of the cultural exchange programs or, you know, international food awareness campaigns? Um, so we've worked on a lot of cultural um, programs between countries, um, you know, We've done a lot of work. I mean, the first one that we ever worked on was actually Ukraine um, in 2012. And it was quite interesting because 
Ukraine was trying to really assert its identity through culture when a lot of the world sort of saw them as interchangeable with Russia. Mm. And so a little bit like you have sort of India and then the other countries around India, you know, say in so Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, struggle to really form their identities uh, when you've got, you know, a, a sort of a, a dominant play in the region. Likewise, Russia is a very dominant player. Um, and um, and uh, and so Ukraine and other, you know, sort of former um, Soviet Union countries struggled to build their identity very much like what's mm-hmm. happening. South Asia, because, you know, post-partition, all of a sudden, these countries needed to have an identity. And you create an identity overnight when we were all one country uh, with. And, you know, so the Soviet Union, funnily enough, has a very similar trajectory um, to South Asia and, you know, post-partition. And of course, post-partition, you know, we've had 70 odd years, whereas the Soviet Union has been 30 years. So they're much you know, you know, they're much earlier on in their journey. Um, but, you know, usually using and, and the issue with these countries is that they often are struggling to educate their people, to feed their people, um, you know, mm. to provide basic health care. And then when you say to these countries, oh, well, let's go and do a bit of a cultural jolly, um, they find it really hard to just mm that spend when they're trying to deal with the basics in their country um, and it's really that sort of pressure between short-term needs and and building that long-term storytelling and you know when you say to people well instead of putting building another school put some budget to cultural storytelling it sounds so fluffy yeah. that the reaction is you know it, it tends to be very negative um, but actually you know it does work to Put yourself in the world stage and it does attract the tourism and the trade but you get the longer term economic benefits as opposed to the short-term impact of the spending so it's very hard for these countries i think um because they you know because they are struggling to you know t- to really portray themselves in the world stage and then you've you know got countries like the us and they are a master in cultural storytelling you know through hollywood through McDonald's, um, you know, everyone flocks to, you know, if you ask anyone around the world, which country would you want to live in? A lot of them would turn around and say the US. And, you know, and that kind of gives you a sense of that country soft power pull. Yeah. You know, and the US has done, you know, and they haven't just happened to, you know, do it, you know, they've had a planned strategy um, in promoting their culture. It's curious to say that, um, Many years ago, I was I was teaching English, and there was a section that the book from the National Geographic, and they were they went to Bhutan. So Bhutan was also one of those little tiny countries that is lost with you know the big space that is India, and um, I think there were three women left in that rural you know country that she spoke the native language of Bhutan, but because of India the common language, principal languages have become Hindi. And so what National Geographic did was attach like a recording, like tape recorders yeah. to these women to save the dying language, but also save food, culture and storytelling and the essence of life that is native and unique to the people that are of Bhutan. And you just made me think of that with Ukraine. And it's just, there are other countries that are in a similar situation to what you've just described that are also trying to make their way and establish some sort of presence in this 
world and it's, yeah. it's hard. It's really hard because, you know, you look at Africa, 54 countries, you know, the way they carved up Africa wasn't along ethnic tribal lines. And mm -hmm. so you have countries in Africa that actually have, you know, multiple different tribes, you know, and part mm -hmm. of the in one country and the other and the other so how do they cobble together like a national story um mm -hmm. it, it, it's really hard for countries um whose borders are artificial so we shall we say in the sense mm -hmm. that it, you know it's not sort of neatly around you know a certain ethnicity or tribe um and then what's also fascinating is you know countries like the uk and the us that have you know, very diverse populations, um, you know, rather than homogenous populations and how are they telling their story using culture and obviously promoting diversity as an ideal, uh, you know, goes uh, you know, some way towards it. But it's definitely, you know, a very fascinating time where countries are realising that storytelling um, is not just for consumer goods, um, it's for countries, it's for nations, it's not only for internal social cohesion that everyone feels part of a story of a country story but it's also external to bring in the tourism and bring in the trade and the investment no definitely and uh, you know communication in, in terms of this communication is your passion and it's a major part of your work um and your work is highly sought after by government officials and broadcasters and newspapers and honestly you as a person, I think you are pulverizing the glass ceiling for your work because you're the work that you've been involved with with countries and you know the government in the UK and just other brands and chefs, you've really put your mark on it. But I'm inspired. And to just say I'm really inspired by the people that I've worked with. Um, and there's so many people out there who are like me, who are very open uh, to the other, because you get mm -hmm. different personalities. Some people don't like change and difference mm -hmm. and other people like myself who love other cultures. Uh, and there's so many like-minded people around the world that, like me, want to build these bridges. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I feel like I'm part of an international community that want to really create a community around the world as opposed to just fragmented, you know, countries. Yeah, no, definitely. I, th I think it's quite beautiful, the work that you are doing in, in connecting and creating these sort of global partnerships. And But how has your journey been so far? Like, has have you had some trials and tribulations or, you know, or has it been smooth sailing? Like, you know, please tell me some more. It's been quite hard. Like, like overall, I love what I do. I feel it's my purpose. I've come from, my parents came from Pakistan. I live in the UK. I'm married to an Italian. My friends are all diverse around the world. So I feel that my DNA is about sort of, you know, bringing people together mm. and, you know, and building bridges across, you know, countries and cultures and people. And that's what I stand for. Um, but it has been hard because, you know, my first client was Ukraine. My second client was Russia. Um, obviously, you know, Russia is persona non grata now. Um, and so, you know, and I and I sort of get trolled, you know, on Twitter saying, oh, my God, you work for the Russian government. And they kind of make out that I was Putin's, you know, personal private secretary sending out. Oh my goodness. Okay. And I was like, yeah, when Russia and the UK were actually had very positive dialogue, I was promoting Russian culture in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And and you get accused of doing all sorts. And then I was, you know, and I went to go and work also in um, Bahrain. I was, you know, I was very much sort of, um, you know, criticised for that. Um, I've worked, you know, um, I've worked in a lot of countries, you know, 
from countries that are non-contentious, so we say, like Canada, mm-hmm. like Finland, um, you know, like Japan, like South Korea and other countries. And and I get a lot of sort of um, trolling um, around the countries that I work with um, on culture. And it's really hard because I sort of believe, I don't believe in excluding entire countries because you don't like one aspect of their foreign policy, um, you know, because also we all, have, every nation needs to look in the mirror and, you know, and perhaps our foreign policy in the UK, you know, there may be elements of it historically or currently that may not quite be right. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan and, and Iraq and and the way that, you know, we manage those. So I think there's a huge air of hypocrisy, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can only work for these countries and you can't work for those because we don't like their foreign policy um, at one point in their history, um, but not looking at ourselves. So there's a lack of self-awareness, I think, sometimes with nations, um, Mm. with people. And there's a huge sort of, you know, wanting to silence countries, which I just don't like that. I mean, of course, if, you know, there's a rogue nation and like what's happening with Russia at the moment, I mean, us as an agency, so we will not work at all with anyone the government because of what they're doing now um and um but it's it's that sort of sense of shaming voices and silencing voices and um you know and there are certain countries at certain times that i believe communicators shouldn't work for um because you don't want to further them but it's it becomes a very tricky terrain to manage because you always want to make sure that every project that you work on has a positive impact and you're Mm not enabling you know bad people doing bad things um and so it's it, it's a lot more complex and that's you know something that I've always you know been very conscious and aware of uh, in you know sort of walking that fine line and so if there was one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in your career what would it be gosh I I would I would say that you know um to just be um just be aware that if you go and start working in the international space um, and you work at a certain level, um, you know, there'll be certain people who will come after you. Um, and I think that and, you know, especially as a woman, um, it you know, there's been some jobs I've been sort of given and I haven't gone because I was, you know, I was sort of worried about personal safety. I'm also a mother. Um and so I think, you know, the issue is that when you work in the sort of government space and the international space and this, you know, and the geopolitics is switching and changing. Like five years ago, we were best buddies of China. Now it's like persona non grata, don't want to work with you anymore. Um, so you've got to constantly be aware of the geopolitical shifts, the changes in sentiment and, and sort of ensure that you pivot accordingly. Um, so, you you know, so, so um, you know, so I think to be highly aware that when you work in on these levels um you know you will have to face um you know people who do not like the idea of building bridges um and they prefer the idea of silencing and shaming nations as opposed to dialogue and it's it's a tricky uh path uh for those who believe in you know uniting voices no definitely i think so um you know Many, many years ago, I worked for the European Union Intellectual Property Office and nothing to do with nations as such. But yeah, kind of, but none. It's like it's in a between thing. And, you know, I did a lot of work in Brussels. And one thing I found was when we are creating these united documents that, you know, you have to implement in all these countries in Europe and then soon it goes international. Um 
a lot of shaming does happen. So like you said, as a woman as well, it's really hard. And, you know, having to tiptoe and be respectful and, you know, you have to, you know, I worked with lawyers from around different countries in Europe and creating these documents and being, you know, holding these meetings together. At times I wanted to like just curl up because you're dealing with different, you know, strong characters that are like, but oh, you know, uh, our national, um, like our documents won't work here because of this. And I want to write this. And Anisha, you can't do it. Like it was just a, um, a hard time. <laughs> And, you know, you're thinking as well, like building bridges and a lot of people just want separation. So it's really hard to implement something that will benefit the country in long term. And, you know, how will they deal with it? So thankfully, my projects are implemented in the EU. But in the like in the grand scheme of things, at times, I honestly thought about my mental health because it was a lot of pressure from different governing bodies in Europe on me going we want to change this and this is not going to happen and it's 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 tough to maintain saying you know yeah. breathe and, and it can be very toxic. yeah it can be very toxic and I think whenever there's power dynamics involved that just basically throws up all sorts of characters and agendas mm-hmm. um and sometimes you feel like you're walking you know in a lot you know in a you know full of landmines and you've got yeah. to call sort of you know and you get to a point where you just can't make everybody happy and you've it's got true. that and you've just got to follow your heart your purpose your values um and you know and, it's, and, it's true you know. oh, it's so hard sometimes when you look back you're like oh it's a wonderful that's a wonderful lesson but in the moment you're like it was a minefield yeah. <laughs> it really was. and so you know Continuing on in, in relationships, as part of the Paris Agreement, the world has committed to a zero net path by 2050. In recent years, many companies have made bold commitments to change the way they do their business. However, it's not always clear how they how they will succeed. For example, food, co- uh, food companies are now shifting towards a shorter supply chain in terms of, you know, carbon footprint and all of that. But how have you worked with leaders to develop a coherent story to demonstrate their companies or countries' adaptability to yeah. this new world? Sorry, I got stuttered over my words. Um, well, you know, you know, one of the things that we're taught in the PR industry um, is, you know, is authenticity and the importance of, you know, not going down the greenwashing route, you know. Um, you'll always have rogue PRs who do things and give us a bad reputation. But by and large, um, the best PR, uh, the best PR sort of approach is always you take the truth and you amplify the truth. And um, because the minute you deviate from truth, you lose trust with your stakeholders. And to build trust is incredibly hard. And you have to protect those, those reservoirs of trust that you have in, you know, in your stakeholders by always ensuring that you know, the information that you're giving. And I think people are generally quite forgiving. And I think if, you know, a company or a country says, you know, we know that we are not where we want to be, but our intent is there. And we're going to marry our intentionality with action and resource. And this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to measure it. This is how we're going to report it to you. And they don't, and, and if they screw up, they say, we didn't, you know, we're disappointed with our results, you know, and this is why we didn't meet our targets. And this is what we're going to do to counter it. And I think if you take people along on that journey 
um, you know, showing your vulnerability and being authentic. I think, you know, I think stakeholders are forgiving. I think where things break down is when people become disingenuous with the truth and they start greenwashing and they start saying how wonderful they are as a country or a company or a person. You know, I think that we, we all understand the human condition. We all understand that we're all fallible. And the importance is, you know, regular communication um, making and making it really clear um, what the intent is and what the process and 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 that sort of transparent reporting and i think you build so much trust when you say to your stakeholders we didn't make our target and we're disappointed and we've reviewed why and these are the reasons why and these are how we're going to mitigate that for our next you know reporting quarter um so that's really important and it's transformative um but it's usually you know often people don't go down that route because out of fear of being criticized um, and and then they end up being criticised even more uh, because they've kind of played you know uh, played around with 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 sort of you know the truth and semantics. Um, but it's yeah, it, you know we always we always counsel transparency um, because transparency is what builds trust, and trust mm-hmm. is what builds relational capital with stakeholders. Definitely. So you know this, I think this also applies for corporations and governments. Yeah. You know, so let's take um, like food policy. So since leaving the EU, there's still so many grey areas, I'd say. Um, how do you communicate best practices for um, managing media relationships in terms of the situation or managing market expectations in terms of these sort of situations? I think it's, you know, it, it's about, um, I think sometimes, unfortunately, you know, certain, you know, journalists may have a certain story in mind and they may have a certain agenda in mind. and no matter how transparent and open you are, they may just take what, you know, take a piece of your company or your country and build a narrative around that isn't really the whole truth. And I think sometimes you just, there's nothing you can do about that, uh, really. Um, but, you know, I think one way to counter that is when people kind of misshape your truth um, is by having a very strong uh, sort of um, direct to public mm-hmm. uh, communications channels be it websites, blogs, podcasts, social media, and really ensuring that the content that goes out there is engaging and is is authentic and and is trusted information so that you can counter any um, sort of narratives that are seeking to undermine, but that you can only do that if you are brave with your content on these channels and you, you you tackle difficult situations um, and, you know, head on with transparency. So it, it really goes back to building trust and you can only build trust through transparency. And, you know, transparency is about being vulnerable and showing, you know, what you've done that's great and what you've done that's not so great, coupled with a self-awareness around it and a mitigation strategy. So when we so when we consider the barriers that you've had to, you know, overcome in this sort of situations, do you think, it's a bit of a personal question, but do you think, you know, when we think of cultural diversity and growth, do you think as a woman it's been harder in terms of communicating this and, you know, managing these media relationships? Or, you know, do people take you, in the beginning, do people take you seriously? You know, because sometimes there is this whole thing of gen- gender equality. Yeah, I, I think, you know, funny enough, I was at an event um, a couple of nights ago and somebody said to me, you know, I really try to get you on the pitch list for this particular, you know, very big company. Um, and, um, and it was, uh, yeah, and, and they said, you know, unfortunately, 
the feedback we got is they you know we um that you can't get on the list even though you're really perfectly suited for this particular job um because of your ethnic background now but what's shocking is the person who didn't want me on the pitch list um because my ethnic background was of the same ethnic background as me so yeah 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 I'm a bit speechless like and and I was like intrigued I was like really and I said thank you so much for telling me number one this is you know this person this person had left the company so therefore told me and I said I don't understand and she said because the thinking is that they want to influence you know journalists in the UK and you know and other sort of government stakeholders and the thought is that you as an ethnic minority won't have that ability to influence um so it was, you know, and, and, and so what's quite interesting is discrimination doesn't just come from different ethnic groups. It can come from within ethnic groups. Um, but, you know, saying that I've had a hugely supportive um, South Asian community that have always battered for me, actually. Um, so that's the first time I've ever heard of somebody from the same ethnic background as me discriminating against me. I've actually never heard that before. And I've always had a wonderful experience um, with, you know, with people from the same community as me. But that was quite shocking. And I think it wasn't, and I think it showed how they, I think it it kind of echoed a lot of sort of um, fear that people have that ethnic minorities in this country don't actually have influence. And I think, well, look at our prime minister. Uh, You know, what more do you want? Uh, and I think there is, you know, a, probably a sense of maybe that's tokenism or I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the UK actually is a wonderful society. I think we've got our problems. And um, and I think definitely there's sexism, there's racism, there's yeah. also class issues as well, which is massive. Um, and I think that we all carry with us privileges uh, and we all carry with us, um, you know, areas that we can be discriminated against. And it isn't as cut through as just gender and um yeah. And I think, you know, yes, I'm I'm a woman and I'm an ethnic minority, but also my parents came from a middle class background. They were entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I had quite a middle class you know, sort of upbringing. I went to state schools and private schools. I feel privileged in the way that I run a business. But my grandfather ran businesses. My, you know, my my parents both ran businesses. My aunties, even in Pakistan, all ran businesses. I had strong role models. I really respect people who haven't had that and who, you know, who were the first to go to university in their family, were the first to set up businesses. I think they are the role models and I think they are the ones who are the game changers. Someone like me, I've aped what I've seen around me. Um, so, you know, every ethnic minority woman has a different journey. And I came from a relatively privileged background. Um, so I didn't I wasn't really a game changer. I did exactly what my aunts, my grandparents and my parents did by running businesses and having that confidence. Um, but, you know, someone who's a child of a bus driver like Sadiq Khan or Sajid Javid, I think, wow, you know, no, definitely. I, I respect um, who didn't have those role models. No, definitely. I, I think that, you know, I, I find it quite curious. Like, this is the first time you've experienced this sort of relation or this this sort of discrimination. I wouldn't even say it's discrimination, but this sort of... It, I it, scored when I um, I've grown up with it. And I used, it's really curious, I used to get bullied, but within the Indian community, and it was, so, so for me, I've grown up with it. But oh, wow. so um so for me it's you know I never got bullied by any of my friends or anyone that wasn't from the ethnic minority that I was in so I I think that's absolutely fascinating um because I think you know school can be a terrible time for children but um 
wow, you really surprised me, really, really. Um, but, you know, my last question to you, you know, it's a one, leading on from this, it's a one life lesson your job has taught you that you would give to yourself looking back. Yeah. Um, so, gosh, I think that it, it's, it sounds so like uh, on trend, really, but... I would say looking back, I was very, um, I never, I was never kind to myself. Um, and I think that I had very poor mental health over the years, especially when I was a young mum running a business. At some point I had an office in Dubai and New York as well as London. And, you know, and I was very much sort of like, you know, seeking external validation um, and in order and um, at the expense and it wasn't ego driven it was more sort of low self esteem that i had um and i was just you know constantly you know working non stop 7 days a week you know and it then impacted my mental health and uh, and it took me a very long time to realize to be self aware of why was i pursuing you know all of this you know sort of um industry sort of claim or whatever um, or working with interesting clients and a lot of it came from a lack within um, and it took me god it's taken me about 25 years in my career to realize that you know um, I need balance in my life and questioning why I am ambitious and and why I want to do things and you know and realizing that sometimes it comes from a, um, a poverty within um, so what I've kind of learned is you know through meditation, through self-awareness, uh, through, you know, really understanding my motivations, um, I've learned to have a bit more balance in my life. Um, and uh, and therefore, I'm a much happier person than I used to be. Mm. So sometimes I would, you know, in the past, I don't receive an award and everyone would be like, congratulations. And I felt utterly miserable and empty and broken inside. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but now it's like a day goes by and, you know, um, and I haven't done anything amazing particularly, um, but I feel wonderful inside. So I think it's just about questioning life and and kind of like motivations and, and purpose and um, and taking time to be kind to yourself. You know, it's, life isn't a race um, with other people. It's just about a journey with yourself, really. I think that's absolutely stunning, like so beautifully said and on that note, I just want to say, Kazana, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And I've learned so much about the journey you've embarked on. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've, I've learned an awful lot from you and I love the conversation. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you.